Well, it is great to worship with you this morning as we celebrate God's faithfulness. Maybe you're worshiping, celebrating His faithfulness to you personally. Maybe you're celebrating His faithfulness to you in, in a relationship, maybe a restored relationship. But also we gather together to worship God for His faithfulness to us as a church. In fact, it's pretty amazing that while we're in here worshiping together and singing those songs together, we've got a whole team of folks who've been practicing now for two weeks. And I want to give you a little look behind the scenes what's been going on while we've been here. So this is the new production room that is uh, functional. So we have a team of volunteers and staff that have been working and producing the uh, worship service while you're uh, sitting in here worshiping together. And then that same team is right now producing this service and this message so that we'll be ready for live stream here between now and the end of the year. Our, our app is continuing to be in its final beta for, version, which will allow you to watch the services live stream and video archive as we're moving forward. Uh, if you're interested in being involved and you want to worship through serving in any way, and you'll be part of learning some of our new teams and running a camera or being part of that, this is a great opportunity as we move into this next stage of a tool to help people know more about Jesus. And for those of you who've been worshiping for last year by giving to be part of the project, I want to say thank you. Uh, we're finally going to have the tool to sort of bring what we're doing here out to a larger stage. For those of you who haven't given yet, you feel like, well, I'd love to be part of worshiping in this way. Um, as soon as the installs are done with the additional lights and the additional cameras, still more, three more cameras or more to go in, um, we're going to start working on the new room for additional equipping services and other services that's going to happen down the hall. So there's still opportunities to worship through your giving in that way if you want to do it. But very, very exciting time. And these are just new tools to help us make the message and life of Jesus come alive. And as we saw last week with Drew, Jesus is right up to the place that he's been turned over by Pilate, he's been scourged, and he's about to head to Golgotha. If you saw the Passion of the Christ, you probably remember what Jesus looked like uh, in those scenes played by Jim Caviezel. Just brutal scourging. As difficult as those images are to look at, they probably don't even do justice to how bad he really looked. The scourging was so bad that there was probably not one square inch on his body that wasn't bloodied or even torn to shreds. Remember, he, Jesus has been beaten in the last 24 hours by the religious leaders. He's been beaten by Herod and his warlords. He's now been beaten by Pilate, chastened, and then scourged, literally just skinned, flipped over, skinned again with the beatings. And in this condition, which most men did not survive... Jesus not only survived, he now has to take his cross and carry it up to Golgotha. That's where we get our key verse today. I want you to imagine Jesus in this condition and worse, beaten to a bloody pulp. And as he's walking his way, it says, but Jesus turned to them. There's a group of women who are lamenting and mourning just seeing what looks like a horror film going on before him. Jesus just looks horrible. And they're just weeping. And Jesus, in all that pain and agony, turns to them and preaches a little sermon about Hosea to warn them of the danger they are in and their children. He says, oh, do not Weep for me. Really? Weep for yourself and for your children. 
I mean, Jesus' life has taken a terrible turn, right? He is hauling this cross against this bloodied and beaten body. And have you ever noticed, like, when you're in pain, you don't even have the resources to endure. You just kind of go stoic mode, kind of lean-in mode. I just got to survive this mode. When your life takes a terrible turn, whether it's physically or emotionally, divorce, cancer, you just all your resources are focused on you. You don't have the resources to turn and think of other people around you. But Jesus, in this condition, is thinking of other people, their need, admonishing them, helping them, while he's a bloodied mess. Isn't it true that when you are in pain, you give yourself an excuse, kind of like, you know what, listen, I'm sick right now, I just got to focus on me, and I don't even care what's going on around me. Maybe if one of the guys here, maybe you've had the man flu. Have you had the man flu before? Most men don't know we have it, um, but our wives do. The man flu is when you get a cold and you're like, oh, I'm so sick, honey. Could you hand me the remote? It's right there. I know. But I'm not feeling well. Oh, I can't quite reach it, honey. And you feel justified, actually, in not thinking of other people because, hey, I'm sick. I got the right to be so focused on me time. That's certainly true when you go through a big deal, a divorce, a scourging. But every once in a while you come across somebody who when their life takes a terrible turn, they have cancer. And they walk into a room waiting for their, for their therapy, their chemotherapy, and they are encouraging people and talking to people, and they're focused on bringing joy to the people around them. They can turn to others like Jesus did when their life takes a terrible turn. The person is going through a divorce, and in all the devastation of that, they look for ways to encourage or comfort or empathize with other people they know who are going through challenges in their life. Jesus is the gold standard that in this condition he's able to turn to others. And he's going to say two things don't weep for Simon, and don't weep for me. And by doing so, you're going to understand a power the Holy Spirit can put in you that was in Jesus that you can turn to others. When your life takes a terrible turn. First, don't weep for Simon. Who's Simon? We're not talking about Simon Peter. We're talking about Simon of Cyrene. So don't weep for Simon. Simon is on his way to Passover. He's traveled a long way to get there. And in the middle, he comes across an interruption. And the interruption is this Roman guard pushing this prisoner that he probably doesn't even know on his way to Golgotha. Now, as they led him, Jesus, away, they laid hold of a certain man. So it's pretty bold. They laid hold of him. He was Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him, they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So they lay hold of Simon, and then they make him lay hold of the cross. And the passage tells us, hey, don't feel bad for Simon. Even though for Simon, this probably felt like a terrible turn. I'm on my way to business here in the city. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to get some stuff done. I've got an agenda. I've got to get prepared for Passover tonight. I've got people to see. I do not have time to get in this parade involved in this political mess, involved in this tragedy with whoever this prisoner is. And oh my goodness, you want me to carry a bloody cross? But don't weep for Simon thinking that his life has taken a terrible turn. Because God is going to use this moment in history and it's going to be a turn toward legacy. 
he is going to be known, and we're studying him 2,000 years later, because what seemed like an interruption to him, what seemed like a terrible turn to his plans, will be the thing God uses to create his legacy. And you might have a moment in your life where you got plan A going on, and God swipes you into plan B, and you're like, oh, I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want that report. I didn't want that news. I didn't want that, that thing to happen in my life. And God's like, wait, 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 wait. What you think is a terrible turn might be me turning you toward a legacy. I'm going to use this moment, this circumstance in your life. Now, he's, he's from Cyrene. So where's Cyrene? Well, interesting, just to see how far he's traveled. Cyrene is in modern-day Libya. So he has traveled all the way here to Jerusalem and to, uh, to Israel. And we're going to find out there, if you see it's labeled Palestine, that's not because of the political debate. You're going to find out historically where the word Palestine came from, but that's coming later in the message. So Simon has traveled all this way to come celebrate Passover. And as he arrives there, he's now brought into this scene. Now in Mark, it adds a little detail. In Mark, it says, they compelled a certain man named Simon the Cyrenian... And then Mark mentions, oh yeah, you know him. He's the father of, father of Alexander and Rufus. Now he doesn't mention that for no reason. He mentions it because apparently Simon became a follower of Jesus. He not only had a legacy of the one who carries Jesus' cross, apparently he had a spiritual legacy that he eventually becomes a follower of Christ. So much so that he has two sons, Alexander and Rufus, that are apparently so well known that when Mark writes in the book of Mark, he goes, you guys know these guys. These are leaders in the church by the time Mark writes. There's a spiritual legacy that occurred because of this seemingly interruption in his life. In Romans chapter 16, Paul's saying, hey, say thanks to everybody. Say thanks to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. In Romans 16.3, he says, say thanks to Rufus, a co-laborer with him in the ministry. So don't weep for Simon. This terrible term is a spiritual legacy for his life. He got to carry the the cross of Jesus. It became a a family legacy in his life that God used this moment to to build faith into him and into his family. And they began to build into the Christian community. This was a powerful way that God worked in the middle of what seemed like an interruption. God's great at that. God's got this ability to take grief and lead us back to him. To take what feels like loss and turn it into victory. Take things that weren't part of our plan and we didn't even want to build into us a newfound faith in God. I went to the ATP about a month ago. And when I was there, I drove along with a, a man who had just lost his wife. As we're chanting a little about tennis, and he said he'd lost his wife of 60 years. I said, man, how are you handling the grief of that? He said, it's been so hard. He said, I did pick up this book that's been helpful. I said, well, tell me about that. He said, well, the book is by a guy named C.S. Lewis. Have you heard of him? I said, I have. He said, it's, it's a book called Grief Observed. I said, man, I read it back in college. I remember it being really powerful. It was about how he processed the death of his wife. It's still got some philosophy in it, but it's much more personal. And he talked about how this book that he stumbled across was helping with his grief and he was turning to spirituality and turning to faith and turning to a God in a way that had he not gone through this loss, he probably wouldn't have been around this resource. And nobody wants to lose their spouse and no one wants to lose a spouse of 60 years. But this terrible turn 
in his life, I could already see how God was working in it to take grief and turn him back to God. So kind of one of my classic questions, because I'm a sanguine, is what do you do for fun? And so he mentioned a few things. He said, well, back in high school, I was a, uh, I ran track. I said, oh, I ran track. What'd you run? He said, the 110 high hurdles. I said, I ran the 110 high hurdles. He said, well, I'm kind of, I kind of got famous because I went to high school with some guys who became very famous. So well, tell me one of them. He said, well, I went to high school with, with Bones Dillard. <laughs> I said, he won the Olympics back in 1953 or whatever it was. I'm like, oh, good old Bones. So I went and looked up Bones' story. So Bones went to qualify for the Olympics. He gets down in the blocks, ready to go. You know, he's been training his whole life for this, last four years specifically. And sure enough, went on high hurdles. Boom! Just before the gun went off, he took off. He got disqualified. Your whole life in seconds takes a terrible turn. His coach says, you know what? You've never tried it before, but we're here. Why don't you run the 100 meters? Now, I ran the 110 high hurdles. It's not the same as 100 meters. But he said, well, what did I have to lose? So sure enough, he went over to qualify for the 100 meters and ran it qualified. Went to the Olympics and he won the gold medal in the world for the 100 meters. Came back four years later, requalified for the 110 high hurdles, and he won a gold in the 110 high hurdles. As I was talking to the friend in the car, he said, it just shows how the twists and turns of your life, you can end up finding things you didn't expect because of a disappointment. And what God was doing in his life is what God wants to do in yours and mine. What he's doing in Simon's, don't, don't weep for yourself or get self-pitied over yourself or think God's not... You know, in the building or lost control, God will use what feels like a terrible turn to turn your life toward legacy. But it does the second thing. You see, because don't weep for Simon also because God's going to do something powerful here. Now, if you see statues of Cyrene, you can see he's a, a black Jewish man who's traveled all the way over here, just tough and strong that the Romans would have chosen him to be the one that carried the cross. But the second thing happens is there's a moment because he's going to find the better Passover because of this moment. He's on his way to Passover to celebrate with his Jewish friends. By touching this bloody instrument of death, if he had made a Nazarite vow, it is very possible he just touched something ceremonially unclean. And because of this encounter, he's going to be ceremonially unclean and unable to go to temple for Passover, the very thing he came for. But... Because he's touched something ceremonially unclean, he's not going to experience the Passover he planned for, but he's going to experience God's ultimate Passover in history. And there might be times that you feel like, well, I don't want to get involved with people because they got beliefs I don't have or politics I don't have or they, they participate in things I wouldn't want. And you feel like, oh, good Christians don't do that kind of thing. But the truth is, sometimes when we give up on our plans and our religion and we get involved in the messiness of people's life, the bloodiness of people's lives, we find the better Passover as we see God working in our friends' lives, God working in our family's life, God working in these sticky, messy circumstances. You find the better Passover, the better plan than what you'd intended. See, they laid the cross on him. Oh, no, now I'm disqualified for Passover. No, now I'm going to the real Passover that he might bear it after Jesus. So, don't weep for Simon. 
He's found the better Passover. He's found incredible legacy. Second thing, though, is don't weep for Jesus. What do you mean, don't weep for Jesus? You just told me he's a bloodied mess. Yes. But while he's traveling through, women are mourning for him for good reason. Traveling after him mourning. He says, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourself. A great multitude of the people followed him. And the women also mourned and lamented him. And Jesus turns to them and says, daughters. Which is an affectionate term he used of women in general. But also it's used by the prophets to refer to the suburbs. When I talk about Jerusalem and its daughters. It was like the daughter sections of the city. It's going to be important because he's going to describe what he's describing to them is something that's going to happen to Jerusalem because of Jerusalem and the people's rejection of him as Messiah. So what does he say? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourself and for your children. Why? It feels so opaque. It feels actually almost insensitive. People are actually empathizing with him. But Jesus in that moment is seeing into the future. He's saying, guys, you think what's happening to me is bad? Because you've rejected me as king, because you've not received me in the kingdom, the devastation that's going to occur here in Jerusalem in about 30 years, start weeping now for the coming judgment that you have rejected. Start weeping now for what's going to happen to you and your family and your children because of your rejection. I wanted you to receive me when things are good and prosperous, but instead there's going to be a level of pain. You're going to turn to God in a level of pain you have never seen before. See, God wants all of us, wherever you are right now, not to put off finding rescue from coming judgment. But we put it off. We put it off. And often it's until we're in severe pain that we don't turn to God. He wants us to weep for our current spiritual condition, not wait until we have circumstances that sort of force us to see our broken spiritual condition. It's reading the story of Bob Marley, Redemption Song and Three Little Birds. At the end of his life, he actually became a follower of Jesus. He followed the Rastafarian religion, which believed that the emperor of Ethiopia was the coming Messiah, as you might know that, and that was a lot of his songs were about most of his life. By the end of his life, his wife records that on his bed he had terminal cancer. And the last thing he did and said is he put his hand up in the air and said, Take me, Jesus. To which most people thought it was the terminal pain he was in that had him change and become a follower of Jesus. But in 2005, the Archbishop of Ethiopia said that's not true at all. It was actually several years earlier when he had incredible success. Things were going incredibly well, he turned to Jesus. He was a regular attender of the church there in Ethiopia. Even when he did his tours in L.A. to do music and such, he became a follower of God, a follower of Jesus specifically. In fact, the archbishop baptized him in Ethiopia, he said. So in his deathbed, he was reaching out to God, take me Jesus, as a dedication to something he found when things were going well. But you can find Jesus at both times when things are going well. You can receive him or when things are painful. But why wait for pain to receive him? So don't weep for Jesus. Weep for yourself, your own spiritual condition. And then the second thing he says is, because I want you to know, don't weep for today, as bad as things look today. Weep for tomorrow. 
What's going to happen? For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren. Oh, my goodness. Barrenness was considered a curse. No, blessed. Better to not have kids than to have them go through what's going to happen at 70 AD. When you're going to see your children starve, cannibalism will break out in Jerusalem because of the siege going on, because of the emperor. There's no place to eat. The devastation that Rome's going to bring upon you're going to say, oh, it's better to have wombs that never bore, breasts that never nursed. For they will begin to say, in Jesus' little sermon on Hosea, you'll say to the mountains, fall on us. Oh, better to be dead than go through this. You'll turn to the, to the hills and say, cover us, avalanche us. For if these they do, so if they, the Romans, do these things in greenwood, what will be done in the dry? Now, when you read that, do you go, wow, that makes a lot of sense. It's just opaque, right? It's just like, what in... Jesus, on his way to the cross, thought this little sermon on Hosea would be helpful. And you're like, I hope it helps someone because I don't even know what it means. So we're going to try to figure out what it means. Well, first, the focus is on days are coming. Now, we know in 2019 what happened 30 years later. Pretty horrible days were coming. Where there was a siege and there was starvation and there were children killed... So he's describing that coming judgment where God removes his hand of protection from Jerusalem and allows the Romans to come in. Now, in 70 AD, in the siege of Jerusalem, Titus Vespasian comes in and kills 1.5 million people here. Not only that, 97,000 of them will be enslaved. And he's like, I am so sick and tired of the revolts from the Hebrew people, we're going to make sure these people never get back to the land, never find their way back here. We don't want to ever deal with this again. So they kill 1.5 million. They transport the other 97,000 all over the Roman Empire to disperse them so they don't have a country, they don't have a land. They knock down all the walls. They don't want anything left in Jerusalem. In fact, between 70 AD and 130 AD, the emperor Hadrian shows up and he's like, no, it's not good enough yet. I don't want them to even know that they ever owned this land. Now, Israel has owned this land going back to Abraham thousands of years earlier. This was Israel. This was Jacob's land. This was Abraham's land. So Hadrian says, how can we even take the name away from this land? So he finds out there's a little sliver of Israel that used to be known as the way of the Philistines. It wasn't the whole thing, just this little sliver, the arch enemies of Israel. And he translates it into Latin. Philistines, he translates to Palestine, and he starts calling it Palestine so that Israel will know they're no longer welcome in the land they had owned for thousands of years. And that's where the term Palestine came from, Emperor Hadrian. A siege of the past, a siege to the future. God wanted his people, I mean, it's not God. God removed his hand of protection, and now the people are feeling the consequences of the pain that went on there. Now, what does that do with Hosea? Well, we've got to go to Hosea to figure out what he's saying. So notice the phrase, mountains fall on us, hills cover us. If you go back to Hosea, in the book of Hosea, the Assyrian Empire was the enemy at that time. The people, things were very, very prosperous in the nation, but they turned their back on God despite their prosperity, and they set up these altars or idols in the high places of Avon. 
There's little play on words in, in Hosea that Avon can also mean the haven of evil. So what you think is your religious place where you worship the, the god uh, of Baal and other gods has become a place of evil. And Hosea warns, because you've done that, God's going to remove his hand of protection and the Assyrians are going to come in and crush you so much so that you're going to say, fall on us, mountains, cover us, hills. So the women who were hearing his sermon on Hosea, when he said that phrase, mountains cover us, hills fall on us, they would say, oh, I know where that comes from. Hosea said that right before the Assyrians came in and crushed the place. I think Jesus is saying that the Romans are going to come in and crush the place because God's going to remove his hand of protection. And then Jesus ends with some really weird phrase. He says, For if they, the Romans, do these things in greenwood, what will be done in the dry? Uh, thanks? Uh, what does that mean? What in the world? Uh, just like, well, this will help. Let me tell you a story. So I love boating and I love jet skiing and we had boats growing up all the time. And so we went to the Illinois River all the time. So I love skiing on the river. I know some people don't like it. I love it. And so we would go camping. So I came home from college one time with my friend Jim, who uh, was in high school at the time, but he's going to head into the army after that. And my dad, who's an incredible planner, we put our stuff in his truck, we put the boat in, and most of the time we'd go ski for a little bit, come back, get our stuff, but we're going to camp out this time. So I leave my sleeping bag and I leave my clothes there because we're going to just be going back and forth on the river. So we go way down the river to this section of, of the bank of uh, the Illinois River in Pekin. We get there. My dad pulls the boat up and it's starting to get dusk. And I'm freezing cold because I've been jet skiing. I'm all wet. It's getting colder and colder. I'm like, well, Dad, when are we going to head back and get my change of clothes? When are we going to head back and get my, 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 uh, my suitcase and my sleeping bag? He's like, oh, should have brought it with now, in the boat is his tent, his groceries, his, his blanket, his lawn chairs. He's got it all. And he's decided this is one of those moments where, this is one of those moments, Chad, you need to remember to prepare. And clearly you didn't. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is a moment about communication. We always go back to the truck. I have this up. No, nope, too late now. And I had a jet ski. You can't drive those after dusk. So he says, just make yourself a fire. So he brought me a lawn chair and brought my friend Jim a lawn chair. And we're both like, oh, 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 oh. he's in the tent feeding himself grapes and just having a heater. I mean, just a shocking amount. So, so we're there and we're making a fire. So we're wandering around. And if you've ever been on, on the river, the water often gets waterlogged. Or if it hasn't rained in a while, it's been waterlogged, dried out, waterlogged, dried out. So we're like, we're going to make a fire. We're going to prove my dad wrong. So we go about 10 feet into the, into the woods, and we grab these big old logs. Oh, I mean, this, we're going to bonfire of all bonfires. We're going to dry ourselves out and show my dad. So we bring this big old log together. We put it in fire, and we get the stuff ready, and we light it. And it, it is this, a clinic on how to build a bonfire. And that clinic lasts for about six seconds. The log is gone. I mean, gone, gone, gone. It was like, it was made out of a packaging peanuts gone. And apparently what happens is if you get waterlogged, dry out, waterlogged, dry out, this is the driest, driest, driest log ever. It doesn't last anywhere. And so now we're freezing again. Oh, 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 oh. One o'clock. 
we go 20 feet into the woods. We're getting every conceivable piece. Three in the morning. We're now 50 feet into the jungle of Illinois trying to find any wood that we can find that's not green. Have you ever tried to burn green wood because it's still fresh? It doesn't burn very well, and you can hear it hiss because of the water that's in there. So there's no green wood, and there's no dry wood. There's just this cardboard packaging peanut wood. And we're out there freezing to death. And while we're doing that, if you listen real carefully, there were voices from a group of mosquitoes. No, not a group. A swarm of mosquitoes. Hey, Charlie, yeah. You see those two blood banks sitting over there? Oh, yeah, yeah, the two guys sitting on the lawn chairs. Let's get them. And so we are freezing to death. You didn't have enough clothes to cover yourself. It's miserable. All night long, trying to make a fire. All night long, trying to survive this. So I called my friend Jim up this week. I said, hey, I want to make sure I tell the story right. Do you remember it being this bad? He's like, oh, Chad. I went into the army. I was in boot camp. I have slept on snow in Switzerland, and I told everyone who has ever in the armed forces, this is nothing compared to camping with Chad Hoven on the Illinois River. Wow, I didn't realize it was that bad, so we had a good laugh about it. So, when it comes to burning wood, you don't burn green wood because it's got too much moisture in it. You do burn dry wood because it burns and makes a good fire. Then there's a third category of cardboard wood you want to avoid at all costs. So back to Jesus' point. Jesus is the green wood. He's innocent. If the Romans are willing to burn and brutalize me who's innocent, somebody who's not worthy of this punishment, imagine what the Romans are going to do. When they decide Jerusalem is dry wood and they're guilty. The level of burning and sieging and judgment they'll experience is incomprehensible. And that's the metaphor he's using here to describe what's going to happen. He says, so don't weep for me. Weep for the coming judgment in the future. Don't weep for today. Weep for tomorrow. So if we're not supposed to weep for Simon, and we're not supposed to weep for Jesus, then what is our main takeaway from all of this incredible account of what God did? Well, I think it's a verse you could memorize from the book of Mark. Would be our key takeaway today. What does it mean for you and I to take up our cross and follow him? Take up your cross and follow him. And what if we could do what Jesus did, which is to take up our cross and follow him by thinking of others when we're most focused on ourselves? You see, when Jesus and Mark and Luke say, take up your cross, it means die to self. It's an instrument of death. Die to your plans and be surrendered to my plans. Die to your need to be right and sacrifice yourself through apology, through different priorities. Die 
to thinking self-pity and, and falling into a hole because things shouldn't go the way they're going in your life. Instead, say, I'm going to die to that feeling. I'm going to die to my anger at God or anger at life. Instead, I'm going to trust. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you can use this to form a legacy. For me, I'll be known for how I handle these circumstances. A legacy that my family is watching me. My community is watching me. That I'm going to have an Alexander and Rufus around me watching how I handle this circumstance. And God will use it to create a a family community. If I die and take up my cross and follow him. Will you take up your cross and follow him? Will you be willing in an argument to say, I'm wrong? I'm wrong at least a part of it. I'm sorry. Are you willing to look at your calendar and look at your checkbook as you look at both of them and say, are these just examples of places that are all about upgrading my own life or making myself more comfortable? Or is there any cross in my calendar? Is there any cross in my checkbook that says I die to self so I can be generous to others? I die to self so I have time to have margin to serve other people. I die to self so I have large amounts of time I can give to kingdom priorities. I die to self. I don't think about a job as a chance to keep promoting myself. as a chance to, to, to minister to the people God's put around me and that may result in me advancing but I'm not there to advance myself I'm there to advance the kingdom will you die to self will you take up your cross and follow Jesus and what would it look like this week if you did what would it look like this week if you didn't just weep for knowing the story of Jesus and knowing what he went through but have you ever received him in your life to prepare for the coming judgment and if you have are you living that way would we know you're a Christian if if God removed the Holy Spirit from you the Bible says he won't but just hypothetically if he did would your life be any different Are you living in dependence? Because you and I can't will ourselves into being able to turn to others when our life takes a terrible turn. This isn't about willpower. You need what was in Jesus in you, right? I can't conjure this up for more than like a a day, maybe a week. It's not like, try harder. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, what Jesus has got, my goodness, I want some of that. And dying to self is saying, I can't do it. I can't make this up. I can't conjure it up. Holy Spirit, what you did in Jesus, that he could preach a little mini sermon about Hosea because he cared about people while he was a bloody pulp. I need some of that power in here. Take up your cross and follow Jesus by living in dependence on his power. And sometimes that means you're going to do things that other people think are crazy. We got this exploring service that people think is crazy. You're doing secular music at that. So why would you do that? Better Passover. I had two guys came over to my house last week. One's an electrician, one's an inventor. We're trying to make my, my fence keep Mr. Quinn in for a couple more years. And he brought over homemade beer. I don't like beer. Mostly because I grew up jet skiing past the beer factory and the taste in the air just didn't work. But he was so excited about his homemade beer. He's like, you got to try this. I'm like, well, i got to try it because this guy's so excited about it. But I know I'm not going to like it. Oh, it's a dark brew. So I'm like, oh, yeah, it's interesting. But anyway, so I drank the beer. And as he's talking, I said, by the way, we got a, a series starting in about three weeks of the exploring service called Trailblazers. I'm talking about Johann Kepler, who invented the, 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 the printing press or 
European that invented the printing press. I'm also going to talk about Guinness, Arthur Guinness, who started the Guinness Beer Company, who was deeply impacted by Wesley, John Wesley's preaching, and he started Guinness Beer because of his faith in Jesus. Really? I said, so if you're interested in coming to a church service, we're going to talk about the history of beer and how God and Guinness actually sync together. What's that day? (laughs) Now, that might feel like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe a church is talking about beer. Incredible stuff. So our new series, we're finishing a baggage claim, which all these baggages are here. But it's, again, a way in which we want to take up our cross, die to just doing churchy things churchy ways, to create environments for exploring and environments for equipping. So I can turn to my friend, the electrician, who loves beer, and use beer as a conduit to find God. I know what path God's going to take you on. But let's be the people who take up our cross and follow him by thinking of other people like he did for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of your grace and your love and your power and how you work in our lives. Fill us up with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. One quick announcement for you. If you'll see in your program, you've got a program insert. That is for the final family night event that we're going to be having. That's on October 20th with Dr. Kathy Cook. You can go to horizoncc.com family and sign up for it there. So be sure to check that out. Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.